Welcome to the podcast of Constanti Brooks Smith and Profit, in which we discuss labor and employment news and provide practical tips that you can use at your company or in your practice. I'm your host, Susan Badford Wilson. I'm a partner with Constanti in St. Louis, and I am delighted to be joined for today's podcast by my co-host and partner, Sherry Silberman, who works out of Constanti's Tampa office. Sherry, what do we have in store today? Hi, Susan. Okay, so for today's episode, we wanted to address the Family and Medical Leave Act, FMLA, as it seems that we're getting a lot of questions nowadays about some of the nuances of FMLA, as well as concerns from our clients that their employees are abusing FMLA. It's a big topic and not one we can really cover comprehensively in just one episode. So today we'll go over some of the important elements and some practical advice, and then we'll do a part two in the coming weeks. All right. Well, there's no time to waste, so why don't we jump right in? Let me start off with a challenge for you, my friend. Do you think you can review the essential basics of FMLA in five minutes or less? You know how competitive I am. I'm always up for a challenge. Okay, so here we go. FMLA provides unpaid protected job leave for eligible employees for up to 12 work weeks in a 12-month period, um, and it will be 26 weeks for military caregiver leave. The law applies to private employers that employ 50 or more employees at or within 75 miles of the work site, as well as public employers and elementary and secondary schools. So in order for someone to be eligible for FMLA leave, They must have worked for the company for 12 months, not necessarily a continuous 12 months, but at least 12 months, and they must have worked for the company for at least 1,250 hours in the preceding 12 months. They need both of those. They also need to work at a location with 50 or more employees at or within 75 miles of the work site. Got it. And just to be clear, today we are only talking about the federal FMLA, not any state or local family, pregnancy, or sick leave laws, right? Right. Good point. There are various states and localities that have their own FMLA-like protections, which may give employees greater rights than those provided by the FMLA. So always check to make sure you're complying with all applicable laws in your area. That's great advice. I frequently practice in Illinois, and that is definitely one example of a state where you need to pay attention to the state laws and county and city-specific laws and ordinances. All right, so now that we have that out of the way, what are the reasons that someone would be entitled to protected leave under the FMLA? So there are a few different ways someone might be entitled to FMLA or FMLA or Friday and Monday Leave Act, however you want to refer to this law. So one is the birth or placement of a child for adoption or foster care and to bond with the newborn or newly placed child. You can think of this as maternity or paternity leave. Another is to care for a spouse, son or daughter, or a parent who has a serious health condition, including incapacity due to pregnancy um, or for prenatal medical care. Another way is for a serious health condition that makes the employee unable to perform the essential functions of their job. And we'll talk a little bit more about what's considered a serious health condition. So a lot of things to think about here. Um, But again, that's for the employee's own serious health condition. And then in addition to these medically related reasons, there are also two types of FMLA 
that are related to military. So one is a qualifying exigency. Um, and that's, you know, because of any qualifying exigency arising out of the fact that the employee's spouse, son, daughter, or parent is a military member on covered active duty or is, you know, has been notified of a short-term deployment. That's a qualifying exigency. And then the other is military caregiver leave. And that's to care for a relative or a next of kin of military service member that has a serious illness or injury that's arising out of military service. And that's the one where you would get up to 26 weeks of leave. So how'd I do on my five minute challenge? I think you are doing great, but I have to tell you, I got distracted by the uh, whole Friday, Monday leave act thing that you mentioned. Okay. I know it's not the best joke that I have in my arsenal. And in fact, I can't even claim it as my own. So if it's a bad joke, you can't blame me, but (laughs) there is some truth behind it. So the FMLA is great for employees because it provides job-protected leave in in these situations when people need it, but there are definitely opportunities for abuse, just like a lot of the other laws that we manage, right? So anyone who's administered FMLA leave knows why we make that joke. There's always that one person or, depending on the company, group of people that tend to have flare-ups around the weekend. It's weird how migraines always pop up on Monday morning, isn't it? Mm Mm-hmm. Friday too. So we covered that. Now tell me more about who is considered a close family member for whom you can take this leave. So as I mentioned earlier, employees can take FMLA leave due to a serious health condition uh, of a family member that's either a spouse, a parent, a son, or a daughter. Now keep in mind the son or daughter needs to be a minor. So unless they're over the age of 18 and physically or mentally incapable of caring for themselves, um, then the son or daughter needs to be a minor. All right. So you can't have an employee who says, oh, I want to take FMLA leave for the birth of my grandchild, assuming that the parent of that grandchild is, is over 18 and capable of taking care of herself. That's right. Um, But speaking of grandparents, don't forget the concept of in loco parentis. That's a good point. So a parent under the FMLA means a father, mother, or any other individual who stands in loco parentis to the employee when the employee was a child. So that would be someone who has day-to-day responsibilities to care for and financially support a child. Um, an easy situation that we we do run into is where a grandparent is a court-appointed guardian of a, a child. That's a very clear situation where leave would be appropriate. Um, and I do also want to note that the term parent does include step-parents, but by regulation does not include parents-in-law. Well, it's probably because the drafters of this law realized that most people would prefer not to have to care for their in-laws when they're ill or injured. But okay, I digress. I'm just kidding. Well, Sherry, I'll tell you what. Your secret is safe with me. I will not tell your in-laws that you said that. Thanks. Um, mine are pretty pretty great, I will say. But anyway, not so much for some other people I know. The point is, there are interpretations as to who's considered a parent, spouse, or child, but it really is pretty straightforward. Um, so no siblings, no best friends that are like a mom, and no second cousin once removed. Exactly. So let's talk about a situation that is a little more complex. 
what is considered a serious health condition? Right. So that's the $64,000 question. So a serious health condition is an illness, injury, impairment, or a physical or mental condition that involves either inpatient care or continuing treatment. So let's break that down a little bit. The inpatient care is kind of easy to understand, right? It's an overnight stay in hospital, hospice, or residential medical care facility, and then any period of incapacity and treatment and connection with that overnight stay. So that's the inpatient care. Um, Another type is continuing treatment. So there are all various types of different continuing treatment. So one way that you could have continuing treatment would include pregnancy and prenatal care. Another is, you know, long-term or permanent incapacity due to a condition for which treatment may not be effective. Um, You know, Alzheimer's is kind of an example of that. You know, you're incapacitated, maybe there's incapacitated, maybe there's no treatment for it, Um, but there's there's an incapacity there. Um, Any period of, of absence to receive multiple treatments. Um, also, incapacity in treatment. So we'll talk about what that means. Incapacity in treatment is a period of incapacity for more than three consecutive full calendar days, and then any subsequent treatment or period of incapacity related to the same condition. So there, there's some figures here that we can look at to make this a little bit easier because I know it gets a little detailed. So you can have two or more in-person visits to a healthcare provider for treatment within 30 days of the, you know, incapacity or illness, or at least one in-person visit to a healthcare provider for treatment within the first seven days of the period of incapacity, which then results in a regimen of continuing treatment. Some people call that the three-two-one rule, right? Yeah. So I think that's kind of an easy way to look at it. And sometimes you just have to go back to the regulations and remember, again, you need to have at least three consecutive full days of incapacity and and go through those elements to make sure that that satisfies. Um, Another way is chronic condition. So chronic condition is something that requires the uh, person to go to the healthcare provider at least two times a year. And this is something that may cause episodic as opposed to a continuing period of incapacity. And this is dense stuff, um, as you said earlier. Can you give me an example of what a chronic condition might be? Right. So that would include things such as diabetes, asthma, you know, long-term conditions, um, and one that requires a visit to a healthcare provider at least twice a year. You know, most often you're going to be seeing a healthcare provider more than twice a year for these things. But, you know, in order for it to be covered, you have to see a healthcare provider at least twice a year. And it's something that's going to be recurring over an extended period of time. Got it. I think I would like more examples. What are some things that are typically not covered by FMLA, Sherry? So that's a good good question. The regulations give us some a list of some things that are not going to typically be covered. You know, and again, these things can change because, for example, the flu. The flu is not typically covered as a serious health condition. However, you know, we've had a couple bad flu seasons over the last few years, and sometimes it can result in complications or a hospitalization. And there you have your overnight stay. And so, you know, while while the flu would typically not be covered by the FMLA, there are times when things do get complicated and they would be covered. But typically the common cold is not going to be covered, food poisoning or upset stomach. Um, 
you know, typically cosmetic treatments are not going to, um, you know, ulcers and routine dental or orthodontic problems. Those are typically not going to be covered. The other thing to keep in mind too, and I see this sometimes, is visiting a family member who may be very ill but not providing care. Um, that is not going to be covered under the FMLA. That's a good summary, Sherry. So let's talk about what this looks like. Um, employees don't always need to take 12 weeks of time in one big lump, right? Right. So that's where the whole intermittent leave comes into play. Except for the military caregiver leave, which I said provides 26 weeks, employees get 12 weeks worth of time. So in other words, if they're a 40-hour week employee, then they would get 12 weeks worth of the 40 hours or 480 hours. And what I call is the FMLA bucket of time. And then they take leave when they need it. Um, and every hour taken or whatever increment of time that you're using reduces the amount that they have left for that 12-month period of time. Got it. And some of the common examples that we see where employees need intermittent leave include time off for a medical appointment, time off for physical therapy, a couple of days of leave at a time for chemotherapy, two hours of leave in the morning for morning sickness, or flare-ups um, of, of things like migraines, right? Yeah, migraines, and I know migraines is one of those where it's intermittent leave because they just pop up and you have no notice. So, And that's the type of thing that can be really difficult to manage as an employer because you're inevitably going to have employees who are out unexpectedly, um, and it's going to make it difficult for day-to-day -day operations. And unlike the Americans with Disabilities Act or the ADA, there is no undue hardship defense. So if the employees approve for FMLA leave and they're legitimately using it for, for those purposes, then they're protected. True. But you and I have both definitely seen instances where absences are questionable at best. There's more than a handful of cases out there. Um, about FMLA vacations or employees who are working another job while on FMLA or golfing. And those situations can be really frustrating for employers when they believe that their, their employees are gaming the system. Yeah, absolutely. It's frustrating for employers. It's, it's frustrating for, you know, their coworkers too. Um, and, you know, even though I said there is no undue hardship defense, there are some things employers can do to try to curb FMLA abuse in these types of scenarios. All right. So let me give you an example. What if you have an employee who takes a two-week Florida vacation while on FMLA leave, and you have photographic or video evidence of this employee. Um, can you discipline or, or terminate that employee? I will give you my favorite answer, which is maybe. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and look, we're out of time. <laughs> so um, truly, th this is what I was saying. There's so much to cover in this, and we will do that. I think we're going to have to leave those tips and tricks for the part two, and we will do that on our next podcast.
That sounds like a plan. I think that we have covered quite a bit today, and I hope that everyone listening has a better grasp of, of the basics of FMLA, what it covers, how it's administered, and a few of the, the tricky situations that can arise. However, before we wrap up this segment, I wanted to know, Sherry, if you have a story from the front lines, something that falls into the category of you cannot make this stuff up. Do you have anything like that that you could share? Of course I do. And I have a, a handy FMLA one as well. So I, I did, I handled a case here out of Tampa a few years ago. And um, there was an employee who was out on FMLA leave for rotator cuff surgery. So he was supposedly out recovering from his surgery. And it just so happened that the HR manager of this organization spotted him when she was driving down the road, working at an auto repair shop. And she sees him propped under this vehicle. You know how they put these, you know, the vehicles up um, with his arms raised doing work. Um, I kid you not, this is a real story. So she was wise enough to pull out her camera or her phone and took some pictures of the whole thing. Of course, he's terminated for FMLA fraud. Um, and, and he had the nerve to file an FMLA retaliation suit after that. So we defended wow. that. We, we won, I will say. It helped to have all of this evidence, but it definitely wasn't without some headache and cost that the employer had to undergo. Of course. Before we sign off, I have one small request for our listeners. We are a brand new podcast. And it would be great if those of you listening would follow us, rate us, or leave a written review on iTunes, Blueberry, or wherever else you get your podcast so that other people interested in labor and employment law can find us. Thank you so much, Sherry, for your insights on FMLA today. And I hope that everyone can tune in for the next episode in two weeks. 